Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lifestyle is Medicine podcast. Today, we continue our coverage of the first Canadian plant-based nutrition conference, which took place on June 1, 2019, at the Michener Institute of Education in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, you will be hearing from Dr. Subhas Ganguly. Dr. Subhas is an associate professor of gastroenterology at McMaster University, located in Hamilton. In his talk, he discusses how plant-based nutrition can help with the prevention of type 2 diabetes. Today, we bring you part one of his talk. We hope Dr. Subhas' talk will really be a source of encouragement to you and your loved ones. Now we present to you part one with Dr. Subhas Ganguly. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for taking the time to be here for what I hope is a stimulating conference. Um, so food as prevention for <clears throat> diabetes. Uh, like Dr. Jenkins, I actually used to get quite a bit of money from drug companies, but since I got into food as medicine, things kind of dried up, so there you go. Um, I think there's quite a few members of the public here as well. I just wanted to make a, a statement that might apply to a lot of the talks here, that actually we're talking about prevention, but actually a whole food plant-based diet can actually reverse a lot of chronic medical conditions. So if you have high blood pressure, you get into a plant-based diet, you might not have high blood pressure anymore. But if you're in a bunch of drugs for that, you might have low blood pressure and get lightheaded. And it's the same for diabetes as well. If you're on a bunch of medications for your diabetes, you might have low blood sugars. So let your physician know if you're making significant changes to your diet uh, so that they can make any changes as you become less diseased. Uh, and then just a general reminder that uh, it's very hard to find a completely balanced diet, but vitamin B12 and other supplements should be considered. I have an evidence-based website at foodisprevention.com that goes over that in detail. So let's move on to obesity, a growing problem. Here is some data from uh, Canada from 2000 through 2012, where you can see the color coding of the different provinces, uh, the codes along the top. And as you can see, there was a progressive increase in obesity uh, in just the space of 12 years. Uh, this is a report from our government in 2016 stating that almost two-thirds of Canadian uh, adults are now overweight or obese, a third of children are, and we rank as number five in the world in terms of obesity. Approximately 62% of the Canadian diet is processed and ready to eat foods, and this is a significant contributor to the problem. Why is it a problem? Well, here's a graph, for example, that shows on the horizontal axis the percentage of your diet or total energy that comes from ultra-processed foods, that's the horizontal. And the, uh, the vertical part here is how much of your energy is from added sugars. And basically, the more ultra-processed foods you take in, the more added sugars you have in your diet. And that is really not in your best interest. Here's a very recent study that came out about 10 days ago where they did something quite interesting. They basically took um, 20 adults and they, for two week periods, they offered them either um, unprocessed food or ultra processed food. They didn't restrict them in terms of calories that they could take and after 14 days, they switched them. So one group initially would have been given unprocessed food for 14 days and then they flipped them to processed food and then the other group was the reverse. And they, they didn't tell people how much they could eat. And so it was in random order. But the other thing that was really interesting in this study is that the, the, the two diets that were offered were matched for calories, matched for sugar, matched for fi fat and fiber, and matched for micronutrients, which I presume are things like proteins and fat. And so although the diets were matched, they were allowed to eat as much as they want. What happened? Well, point one is the top of the graph. You can see that the group that had ultra-processed food was having about 500 calories per day more 
And that was just people being allowed to eat what they wanted. The bottom uh, graph is actually what happened to their weight. In the space of just 14 days, the people who had unrestricted access to ultra-processed food gained 900 grams. The group that had unrestricted access to unprocessed food lost 900 grams. So that's basically a 1.8 kilogram difference in weight in 14 days. So perhaps you can see the implications of a processed food diet. When I chat about this with patients or public groups, most people say, well, I don't eat processed food. But I think most of us don't quite realize what that involves. For example, on the left part, that is an unprocessed bunch of snacks. The stuff on the right is considered processed. It's actually considered ultra-processed. Here are some other examples of ultra-processed foods, things like jams, canned soups, etc. Here are even more examples of ultra-processed foods. And so I, I think we need to be very aware of this uh, since it's probably contributing. Uh, so who does have obesity in Canada? So this is a breakdown by age and gender. And what you can see, males being in blue, after the age of 20, obesity is more prevalent in males until about menopause, at which case it's fairly matched at a range of about 20%. Um, why is obesity a problem? Well, here, for example, is some data on all-cause mortality. This is an incredible study. 198 studies were combined with 3.9 million subjects. To get into the study, they had to be a non-smoker and healthy, and then they followed them for five years to see that they were still a non-smoker and healthy. And then they looked at the effect of weight on uh, overall mortality. So body mass index is a common way that weight is assessed because it takes height into effect. Normal is 25 or below. So as you can see, as soon as body mass index reaches 25, in the 25 to 30 range, there's an approximately 11% increased rate of uh, total mortality. When your BMI gets closer to 40, you have an approximately doubled rate of mortality. So as the BMI goes up, all course mortality increases. But that's not all. Here's a list or table of diseases that increase one to twofold, two to threefold, or more than threefold with obesity. And I'll, I'll just let you read that for a minute. As you can see, there are multiple diseases, including diabetes, hyperlipidemia, insulin resistance, which drifts into the metabolic syndrome, heart disease, hypertension, cancer, nothing that we would really want. So here is, is, is once again, a graph that shows body mass index on the horizontal scale and relative risk of death from cardiovascular disease. Who can tell me at what BMI does the risk of cardiovascular disease start going above one? Yeah, like at 23 and certainly at 25, it's already getting above statistically. These are called error bars. So once you hit the upper limit of normal, your rate of death from cardiovascular disease starts increasing and it keeps increasing to tenfold or more. So that's upper limit of normal. What about cancer? What BMI does your risk of dying from cancer start increasing? Same again, it's the upper limit of normal, 25. So really, if you just go on Google, you'll be, it'll be easy for you to calculate your BMI. I, I think I did it yesterday, I was 23.6. But as soon as you get above 25, these are risk factors. So here's the rate of self-reported diabetes in Canada from 2001 to 2014. So it's sitting at about 7.5% for men, about 6% for women. Now it's probably even higher. Can we prevent diabetes? Actually, being pre-diabetic is what got me into the whole of the subject of uh, food as medicine. So I started giving talks on diabetes prevention. This is one of the first studies that I presented in a talk that I gave. And it's an amazing study from the USA, a study this thorough will probably never be done again. So they wondered if a lifestyle intervention or treatment with a drug called metformin 
would be able to prevent or delay the onset of diabetes in people who are at risk. So it was a randomized control study. That's how we prove things in medicine. They had 3,200 subjects from 27 centers in the USA who are at increased rate of diabetes because they had an elevated body mass index and they had an elevated measures of blood sugar or a glucose tolerance test. So these were people at increased risk of diabetes. So what they randomized them to is a, basically a placebo group, quote, do what your doctor tells you and uh, take a placebo, uh, or do what your doctor tells you and take a drug called metformin, or an intensive lifestyle modification group. The goal here was to lose 7% of weight. That was done with a combination of exercise, two and a half hours of exercise per week or more, and a, quote, healthy, low-calorie, low-fat diet. I'd like to make very clear this was not a vegetarian diet, this was not a vegan diet. This is the conventional approach. It's like an American Heart Disease Association diet, or perhaps like the old version of the Canada Food Guide, but there would be meat, dairy, etc. in it. So the, the outcome was the rate at which people developed diabetes. And the other thing that they did is it, the intervention was very intense. They would have two to three meetings, one-on-one, -on -one, per month for the first six months, and then monthly one-on-one -on -one meetings afterwards. This will never be duplicated in clinical practice. We just don't have the resources. So this was an incredible intervention. What did they find? Well, weight went down promptly in the first six months. Lifestyle group is here in the bottom, and it stayed lower, averaging about 5.6 kilograms lower out of four years. That was significant, so that looks good. Here is the rate of developing diabetes at four years. The placebo group, about 37% developed diabetes. The metformin group, about 27%. The lifestyle group, about 20%. So when we look at clinical trials, we have something called the number needed to treat, which is how many people you need to treat with something to prevent the outcome of diabetes. If you treat 14 people with metformin, you can prevent one case of diabetes. If you treat seven people with lifestyle, you can prevent one case of diabetes. So lifestyle is more effective. So that sounds really good. They then extended this study out to 15 years. Uh, where, um, and here is, uh, is the data in this study that looked at glycosylated hemoglobin. That is a blood test that basically averages your blood sugar for the previous six to eight weeks. So it's like they check your blood sugar every day and averaged it. So it's now used in the diagnosis of diabetes. Normal is 6% or below. Once you reach 6.5%, frequently they say you have diabetes. So here in the lifestyle group, the good news is, is you can see that it went down at uh, six months and one year. But then what happened? It starts creeping up. Not only does it start creeping up, look at the slope of that curve versus the placebo curve. It's almost identical. So as someone who had prediabetes giving this data, I was starting to feel a little dismayed. I'm going, Really, this in intervention that will never be duplicated in the real world, maybe it buys you two and a half years of lowering your A1C. Then you're basically back where the placebo group is in the sense that you're going up at the same route as they are. They then extended the study out to 15 years. And, and the placebo group, 60% of them got diabetes. The lifestyle group, 52% of them got diabetes. Now, that was a statistically significant difference. But I have to admit, for myself, I find myself saying, wow, at 15 years, there's a 52% chance I'll have diabetes. This is not what I call success. But that is the best that the conventional approach can achieve. What to do? Well, you can do, try doing some exercise, slightly off topic. And this is my only slide that shows if you do 150 minutes a week or more of weights, you drop your rate of risk of developing diabetes by 34%. If you do 150 minutes a week or more of aerobic exercise, 
you decrease your rate of, di of diabetes by 52%. So, so exercise is definitely a good thing to do. Can we have a better dietary intervention? Enter our keynote speaker. So in 1981, Dr. Jenkins invented the glycemic index, and I'm grossly simplifying it when I say that different carbohydrate foods have different effect on your blood sugar, and they can be ranked by how much they raise your blood sugar, and that's called the glycemic index. So when a food has a lower glycemic index, there's a slower supply of glucose into the bloodstream, and it was felt that this might improve the control of blood sugar. Glycemic load factors in the actual amount of carbohydrates in the food as well. And there's an excellent free uh, database at glycemicindex.com. It has over 6,000 foods in that database. So let's start about can it decrease your risk of diabetes. This is a meta-analysis. So uh, for those who don't understand, each, one, each line represents a single study. The vertical line is where there is no effect. Each dot is the result of the study, and the horizontal line is basically called the error bars. At the bottom is the overall statistical summary of all the studies. This is the highest level of evidence that we have in medicine, uh, and this is looking at the association. These are cohort studies looking at glycemic index and glycemic load. Basically, if the diamond at the bottom doesn't overlap the line, you have a significant event, uh, a significant result. So these studies of glycemic index, 20 different studies, showed that people with a high glycemic index had approximately a 19% higher risk of diabetes than those with a low glycemic index, and that was significant. So if you look at glycemic load, you got very similar results. Uh, 30 different studies showed that people with a high glycemic load had about a 13% increased rate of diabetes. So it looks like a low glycemic index can decrease your rate of risk of developing diabetes. What about people who already have diabetes? So here is one of the more recent meta-analysis that looked at that. Funnily enough, they only looked at studies after 2008. But here are some studies, for example, by Dr. Jenkins and, and his group. And overall, they showed that in five studies, 574 subjects, uh, these are now randomized control trials, so that we can say that they cause something. A low glycemic index lowers the glycosylated hemoglobin by about 0.2%, which is highly statistically significant. Uh, so it works in the treatment uh, of uh, diabetes. If you just look at people's blood sugars as well, there's a statistically significant decrease because the diamond doesn't overlap the vertical line. You drop blood sugar by about 0.4 millimoles per liter. That is highly significant. Uh, and uh, here's a different meta-analysis from 2015. This looked at people who had type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and it was looking at glycemic index in treating them. Overall, once again, it showed that glycemic index was effective at treating diabetes. They then did something called a subgroup analysis where they looked, they broke studies down of type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And you can see that the effect is greater in type 2 diabetes, which is the prevalent type of diabetes that we have in Canada. So this is really uh, quite optimistic and encouraging. Uh, what else can the glycemic index help us with? Well, here is a, a combined data. I combined a couple of recent analysis. Yellow basically means statistically significant. So this is looking at endpoints that are re relative, relevant to the heart. For example, here, this shows that a glycemic index of greater than 20 difference is associated with a loss of 1.8 kilograms of weight. Uh, the yellow means it's significant. And interestingly, mainly the group of people who had normal glucose tolerance had the greatest effect of weight loss of 3.3 kilograms. It seemed to be less effective in people with diabetes. If you look at body fat, there's a significant improvement with a low glycemic index. If you look at Fasting glucose, there's an improvement. LDL cholesterol is a significant improvement. Triglycerides is significantly better. 
total cholesterol is significantly better. And with glycemic load, both systolic and diastolic blood pressure is significantly better. So there's a lot of evidence that a low glycemic index diet is a good way to go, whether you're trying to prevent or treat diabetes or minimize your risk of cardiac uh, outcomes as well. I always like to put things in context. I always like to compare things. So this is a, a table that I made that looked at the effects of different drugs. All of these things here are drugs that are used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. We have five drugs and how much they lower HbA1c. And I compared it to the effect of a low glycemic index diet and to structured exercise. So as you can see, while not quite as good as some of the drugs, you're allowed to combine a low glycemic index diet with structured exercise. And if you were to add those two together, you'd realize that you're getting an effect that is similar to many of the oral drugs that are currently used for the treatment of diabetes. So that is very optimistic. Well, that concludes part one of Dr. Subaz's talk. We thank Dr. Subaz for this powerful information. We encourage you to share what you have learned today so that more people can start living a lifestyle that will help lower their chance of getting type 2 diabetes. Check in soon for part 2 where Dr. Subas will conclude his talk on type 2 diabetes. This podcast is brought to you by Pathways to Wholeness Lifestyle Medicine, a group of clinics based in Toronto with a special focus on lifestyle medicine. To learn more about what we do, you can go to www.pathwaystowholeness.ca. To stay up to date, remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever else you get your podcast. You can also listen directly online at the website or find us on YouTube. Thank you again for tuning in today. And remember, your lifestyle is medicine.